The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a giant monster solves the problem of eating the sun by stalking it at night. Spooky good audio drama for sale as Islands is carried to the ears of humanity by a surge of tidal wave files. What was that sound? Five ways to defy the space-time ban on auto racing through the streets of 1636 Vienna. Plus part 31 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time on the podcast, we have a roundtable interview with some authors and the cover artist and the editor of the Bain Big Book of Monsters. This is a new anthology out from Bain. It features stories about tiny little monsters, not big monsters, big, big monsters, we have legendary cover artist Bob Eggleton back on the podcast for that one, along with the great Wen Spencer, Sarah A. Hoyt, and the editor of the book and Bain editor emeritus, Hank Davis. The interview is conducted by David F. Sherrad, by the way, who will be the editor on our all-new endeavor, the year's best military SF and space opera anthology 2015 edition. That book is coming out next summer. Lots more on that later. So that's coming up, and we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. And I want to make a special announcement. The audio drama we have presented as a miniseries recently here on Bain Free Radio Hour is now available for purchase at BainEbooks.com. That audio drama, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint and set in the world of the Belisarius series by Eric and Dave Drake, it is lushly produced with cinema-quality sound effects and an original musical score, as well as a full cast of great actors. I think those of you who gave it a listen will agree it's really good stuff. Now you can own it. Download it, burn it to a CD if, like me, you know what one of those is. Add it to your music library. Listen to it when you just can't take any more Taylor Swift teenage ballads. But does that ever happen? It's available in both MP3 and WAV format. If you have a good sound system available, you got to check out the WAV version. Barry Jacob, our sound designer, mixed it differently with a lot more dynamic range and bottom to the low tones and other technical stuff like that. It's worth inviting over your friends, passing out blindfolds so they can get into the proper spirit of the thing, and listening to Islands once again or for the first time. And if you go purchase Islands, you'll also be helping out our pioneering audio drama line here at Bain. We are making more audio drama. We are now producing Larry Correa's Hard Magic Universe story, Detroit Christmas. It's going to be another good one, folks. Islands is available at BainEbooks.com. Not Bain.com, but BainEbooks.com, our retail site. How do you get it? For now, put in the search word Islands and it'll pop up. John Ringo's Islands of Rage and Hope ebook will also pop up in your search results, and you can get that too while you're at it. We're setting up an audio drama domain at the ebook site, but for now, just the search term Islands will get you to it. Now available 
Eric Flint's Islands Audio Drama at BaneEbooks.com. And now, here's other news. The November hardcovers are champing at the gate and ready to burst forth like the thoroughbreds they are. That's a that's not a bad analogy, I don't think. Out this month is 1636, The Viennese Waltz. This is a new entry in the Ring of Fire series about a West Virginia town that is thrown back into the middle of Europe in the 1630s. The uptimers are now four years into their new lives. The USE has been established, the United States of Europe, and strange new ideas are beginning to spread from the future. But there are plenty of forces who are invested in the status quo and want nothing at all to change. This new entry is by Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, and Gorg Huff, who are the same team that wrote 1636 The Kremlin Games, an excellent and often humorous entry in the series featuring hapless loser Bernie, who becomes advisor to the Russian Tsar. That's one of my favorites in the series. In the Viennese Waltz, we have auto racing through the streets of Vienna and a group of teenage venture capitalists trying to jumpstart the local economy. We'll talk with this gang of authors for an upcoming podcast. We're also continuing to put out all of David Weber's Honor Harrington books in order in beautiful signed leather-bound editions. Up for November is The Short Victorious War, book three in the series. This is the book where the People's Republic of Haven has its revolution and becomes a deadly threat to Honor Harrington's star kingdom of Manticore. Also out in original trade paperback is The Sword of Michael, which is a cool contemporary fantasy novel with a modern-day gun-toting shaman as a hero. We'll talk with author Marcus Wynn about that one in a future podcast as well. Since this is publishing and everything goes on sale on the first Tuesday, I can tell you that 1636 The Viennese Waltz, The Short Victorious War signed Leatherbound Edition, and The Sword of Michael are all at booksellers everywhere on November 4th. But the new Bain mass markets are already out there because mass markets go on sale the last Tuesday of the month prior to publication. There will not be a test on any of this. So check out the new Bain offerings now. Hello out there in podcast land, boils and ghouls. I'm David Afsharirod, and it's great to be your ghost host for this special spooky edition of the Bain Free Radio Hour. Today we're going to be discussing things that go bump in the night, but we're not talking about the monsters under your bed. No, no, these monsters wouldn't even fit under your bed. That's right, we're talking this horrific half hour about big dang monsters. Why? Because the Bane Big Book of Monsters is out now, that's why. Including 21 short stories by giants of the genre, such as H.P. Lovecraft, Edmund Hamilton, Robert Block, Robert E. Howard, and Larry Correa, and of course our guest today, the Bane Big Book of Monsters is sure to captivate fans of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Here to talk about the book and the big monsters contained therein, or maybe I should say barely contained therein, is Bane Editor Emeritus Hank Davis. Hank's the editor of A Cosmic Christmas, A Cosmic Christmas to You, In Space No One Can Hear You Scream, and you guessed it, The Bane Big Book of Monsters. He's also a bit of a writer himself. In addition to the obligatory introduction essay, he's got a short story in the book, which we'll ask him about a little bit later. Hank, thanks for joining us, and thanks for putting the book together. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, we also have Wynn Spencer here with us today. Well, actually, she's not with us. She's joining us via telephone from her home in Hawaii. Originally, we were actually all supposed to fly out there and record this at her place, but Tony Daniel canceled our funding, so we 
We just have to do it this way. Uh, even so, we're pleased to have her. She's the author of the books in the Romantic Times Sapphire Award-winning Elf Home series, uh, the latest installment of which uh, is called Wood Sprites, and it came out just last month from Bain. She's also the winner of the prestigious John W. Campbell Award. Wayne, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Um, thanks for having me. Um, this would not be a good time to come. We're just about to be hit by a hurricane, and of course we have lava everywhere, so uh, you're safer where you are. And finally, Bob Eggleton joins us. Bob is actually our only guest to not have a story in the book, but I think that you'd all agree we'd be remiss in not having him on. He's a prolific science fiction, fantasy, and horror artist. His art has adorned the covers of dozens of Bane books, including all of the Bane Heinlein reissues, and of course the Big Book of Monsters. Uh, in addition, he's done work for Magic the Gathering and cover art for that venerable monster mag, Famous Monsters of Filmland. He's also won the Hugo an astonishing eight times, and I could be wrong, but I think he's the only guest we've had on the podcast who has an honest-to-God asteroid named after him. Bob, thanks so much for being here. Oh, not a problem. Yeah, no, I'm glad to be here. I was the instigator of giant monsters. Um, that's what I'm. That's what I like. I like big things. Yeah, well, let's t let's start there, actually, um, since the book started with you. Uh, Hank, in his introduction, mentions that you were the one to come up with the concept for the anthology simply because you really like big monsters. That's the funniest part, is that I had no idea that I came up with the concept of it until I opened the book, and I said, oh, my God, this is all Bob Eggleton's fault, you know. I think I just mentioned to Tony Weisskopf, I said, we need a giant monster anthology, and that's where we left it at. And and then this thing pops up, and I was like, oh, my God, it was did, did, did that little seed grow into this? You know, I mean, um, I, I just think that there's a, um, you know, there's this giant renaissance stuff going on right now. We had... Um, you know, Pacific Rim, which wound up, despite uh, it wound up being very successful, and uh, you know, and, and overseas and the world over. And then this year we had the very successful Godzilla movie, um, uh, where he made a landfall on Hawaii, in fact, speaking of Hawaii. Mm -hmm. um, and um, for me, I, I've always been, I've always been impressed, I've always liked big things that chase little things. You know, I mean, I mean I've always been like a like a kind of a guy that's into this kind of sense of scale, something much bigger than us, um, and that something that is like, you know, much, much bigger than us that, um, you know, we can briefly enjoy our our um, our our labels of 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 you know the the the, ca the the captains of the planet, so to speak, and then something bigger comes along and shows us no 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 it's it's much bigger than you it's there's forces out there that are much bigger than you and it will it will ultimately drown it will ultimately um, tower over you and and um, you know and we we would be ants ants to it as ants are to us that sort of so so to speak. Yeah, and I wanted to kind of get everyone's opinion, and you just sort of weighed in yourself, is you think back, all of the you know ancient myths talk about giants, and I think there's dragons in virtually every culture, and then of course there's uh, the real-life counterparts to dragons, which are dinosaurs, which I think every kid gets obsessed with, and some of us, me included, kind of never lose that obsession, and then we've got King Kong, Godzilla that you mentioned, um, what is it about these big monsters that capture the imagination? Why why are we always so interested in them? Bob, you've kind of weighed in on that. Maybe uh, Hank or Wynn, what, what do you think? Why are we so interested in these stories of big, 
big monsters. I think Bob really nailed it with the sense of scale because we also have the equal fascination with the very small, with like the borrowers. Uh, one of my favorite is Mothra, who of course had the twin fairies that would do the calling. And I just always loved when they opened up the little traveling case and you had the tiny, tiny little people and then the normal size and then the giant monsters. Um, there's just, yeah, there is that fascination. Uh, we can be big and we can be small. Yeah, we did a very cool job of working uh, the Mothra uh, midgets into her into her story in the book. The Shobijin, as they're known as in Japan, um, uh, or they were played um, originally in the movies. They were played by um, the, the, a group called the Peanuts. They were a duet. It was a pop star duet, and they became. Um, they were sort of asked to portray the Shobijin for who were Mothra's sort of like the little consorts. The, and we, we don't know. We don't know how they became little like that. We just don't know that. It's just part of the, the mythology of it all. And over the years, they've changed faces and 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 um, and uh, design. And, uh, they've changed faces and um, uh, you know presentations things like that. And there's been a couple of movies mm-hmm. that Mothra's been in where they haven't been in it, so it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to the cover and, Bob, just talk with you a little bit more about it briefly. Um, for those of you who have not yet run out to your nearest bookseller and purchased it, I'll just describe it briefly. It's uh, We've got a big, mean-looking lizard, dinosaur, dragon-type creature with a with a horn coming out of his nose there. He's stomping on buildings. Looks like the military are uh, rather unsuccessfully lobbing missiles at him. We got a volcano in the background. We got giant uh, tentacles rising out of the ocean in front of him. Who knows who those belong to? Maybe you have your own theories. Um, and there's just a lot going on. And Bob, I wonder if you could just walk us briefly through the the process of creating such a fun, action-packed cover. Oh, it was fun. It was just like it was in my it was in my sketchbook. I, I have a sketchbook where I file away doodles and things that I would like to paint someday. And I and I, I and, and 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 this is very important to me to do my own my own work. And I had this piece filed away, and I said someday that is going to be some use. There's going to be a use for this, and it was just kind of this real real uh, doodly kind of thing that I did very loose actually. And I turned around and. Was able to. Um, uh, I thought well, once this book came along, I said this would be absolutely perfect for it, and so I refined it a little bit, and that's we worked with it from there. And I, I, I decided to make the, you know, I made things a little more defined with it and stuff like that, and and then I just made it an oil painting that's twenty four by thirty six inches, and um, uh, it was a lot of fun to do, and um, very very te- kind of very textural kind of thing to do for me, and it was just like something, you know, you I, I wanted to be something that wasn't too, um, that it was, it was like, you know, everything happening all at once. I mean, volcano was erupting and I mean, everything's just, just going crazy. It's the apocalypse, you know, that sort of thing. It was a little bit inspired by painter John Martin as well, strangely enough. I mean, that's, if you could imagine that with a giant monster in it, you know, that sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, I mean, giant monsters—the whole theory of them—I mean, they go right back to to biblical times. I mean, you have Leviathan from from 
the Bible, which is like, you know, this description of this is this clearly, it's this absolutely gigantic creature that, that, that is, breathes fire and has scales and, and apparently it was a, it was a, an analogy for a whale, um, uh, but I, you know, I just thought that the way that it's written, it's just a giant creature that's, that brings ships down into its lair and things like that. And so, you know, the, the the giant monsters have been there. They've been there all the time, you know. And and that's been a big influence for me is is that kind of that history, uh, sea monsters, anything like that. That whole idea of like uncharted oceans, that what could learn, what could lie there, you know. And that's and that's sort of where the whole thing of monsters comes from in me. And that's I, I you know, I was going to go a little more of a fantasy approach at one point but then I thought well no if this is the book of monsters let's make this like a giant monster attacking um uh, attacking the um, uh, a city, you know that sort of thing. There's this big battle going on, and that's that was like fun for me to do. You know, so that's that's the direction I went with it. Yeah, when they talked to me about the the book, um, asking me for a story, um, when you say giant monster, your first thought are all the uh, Toho movies. When when you're growing up, they were on every Saturday, often in marathons. And uh, to me, that that's what Giant Monster is all about, um, is the really big ones, the one that, that picks up the trains and their toys. And puts and it back monsters. down, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, to me, that that's what the monster really is. And one thing I'll say I really like about the cover is that it's, and Bobby, you kind of hit on this uh, in, when you were talking about it, is that it's sort of, um, you know, you were talking about, big monsters kind of putting us in our place in the universe. And I feel like the cover evokes that in that, you know, you kind of have this, this battle between these two monsters hinted at that humanity is incidental in this thing. You know, he's, this monster's crushing buildings, but it's not out to get us. It's, you know, we're, this evokes this kind of Lovecraftian notion that, you know, um, these things are so far above us and bigger than us that they don't even, we don't even register to them. And I think that's a, a cool idea that is kind of effortly, effortlessly evoked here. That's what I like. I like the idea that we are sort of, you know, in, in a sense, we're insignificant into to these giant monsters. I mean, that's what the whole theme of of of, of uh, the, the the latest Godzilla movie that came out, the big one uh, this summer, was that he doesn't hate us, he doesn't like us, but we're just in the way, you know. And he's got to do his job, and his job is he's got to keep these other things that we've unleashed sort of back in their place, you know, and. Um, you know, it's the whole idea of nature has a balance, and that's what I operate on in all my things like that. I, I like the idea of a giant monster coming up and just, uh, you know, just, it's just so big that it's and it's so lumbering that that it, the build anything around it gets in. It's not, it doesn't hate it. It's just it's in the way. That's the problem, you know. And 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 that's what I like to create. And of course, I had to keep in mind it's a book cover with type on it, and there's going to be authors' names on it and all that. So there's always that. There's always that. That that um that thing I have to keep keep myself well aware of when I design these things. I have to figure out I, in my mind. I'm squinting my eyes, looking. Okay, I'm thinking. Okay, there's probably going to be a list of authors going down that side. And so I hinted at that when I sent it in. I said that I said probably if you drop the authors down the the the, the left side, and then you know have the title across the top, and I think we'll be it'll be it'll be gonna look great. And so that's that's the way I went designing it. I was going to jump on the, the whole, it doesn't hate us, it's just coming through. 
kind of seeing that we're, we're currently having this lava outbreak here, and um, it's heading for a small town. It's a mile away from the town now, um, and all summer it's been it's ten miles, it's nine miles, it's eight miles, and it, it's one of those. No, we can't stop it, and uh, it's going to go across the highway and cut off like one third of this island from being able to go any place. And it's that same, it's huge, it's, you can't stop it, it really doesn't care that you're there. Yeah. Um, it's just going to come the through. Nature. Yeah. Exactly, you know, I mean, anything like that is nature, it's, nature is just going to do what nature is going to do. So, let's, uh, Hank, let me talk to you, you're the editor of the book, and in all these stories, uh, the monsters certainly classify as big, and we've been talking about the really big, you know, dwarfing skyscrapers, but some are bigger than others. So um, did you have a size cut off when you were putting this together? What counts as a big monster in your eyes? What was your criteria when you were looking for big monster stories? Uh, well, I was looking for stories that had uh, fairly big monsters. The Lovecraft one is not enormous. It's about as big as a barn, which it breaks down up at some point. Uh, I was trying for generally uh, significantly larger than human, at least dinosaur size. And of course, Godzilla is a lot bigger than any dinosaur that ever lived. You could probably you could probably swallow a uh, Diplodocus or a Diplodocus. I've never been sure of the pronunciation. In one gulp. Yeah, and he keeps getting getting bigger. I saw a thing on the internet. They. I guess used landmarks in the old um, movies and in this modern one. And since the first movie, he keeps getting a little bit bigger each time. I think this is the biggest yet. So. Yeah, the first movie uh, reviews of the movie, it was re-released with, or maybe it was re-re-released in the early 50s when I was a rotten kid. And I think I remember the reviews of it saying that uh, that he was 50 feet tall. And several people point out his height is inconsistent in the movie. It seems to vary. But uh, he uh, he he uh, he battled uh, King Kong in a movie. Uh, rather, he battled Godzilla in a movie called King Kong versus Godzilla. And if King Kong is fifty feet tall, I don't know how tall Godzilla is. Maybe a thousand feet. Well, but it depends. He, he could. The, yeah, it it would be it. It would be an uneven battle, uh, even though oh, yeah. Godzilla's flay breath. Yeah, they had to make a large King Kong because Godzilla's t- t- height in the early the 1954 on his height was around 180 feet tall. Uh, the new Godzilla is 335 feet, 355 feet tall, so he dwarfs him. But it, he changed heights over the years to accommodate the size of the buildings. As the buildings increased, they increased Godzilla's size. So, uh, but King Kong has oh, been either 50 Ur- Ur- feet. for Godzilla, huh? Yeah. Uh, Ur- King Ur- Kong Ur- is either 50 feet or 25 feet. It depends upon what you, what if you're going with Peter Jackson or Marion C. Cooper. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm going to, I'm going to land on the Marion C. Cooper side on that one. Let's, uh, when I wanted to talk to you about your story specifically, so it's called Whoever Fights Monsters and it takes on, um, Champ, who's the Lake Champlain monster. And for those who don't know who Champ is, and his fans will have to forgive me this comparison, but he's sort of the Loch Ness Monster of New York. 
Uh, as a kid, I was obsessed with this kind of cryptozoology stuff, especially Champ and Nessie, this idea that maybe there's a dinosaur somewhere in the Amazon or uh, in New York State um, that survived into modern times. And I was just wondering, is, is that something you have always been, were interested in or are interested in? And is that what was the inspiration, these kind of cryptozoological creatures? Or was there something else that um, sparked this story? Well, I I grew up on these um, Toho movies, so I do have that love of the big monsters. But I really wanted to do something firmly in the United States. Um, so I actually started to... Um, look around to see what the American version of, you know, the Loch Ness and everything is, because I had heard tales of them, but not a whole lot of detail. And there's the Chesapeake Bay monster, and then there's the Lake Champlain monster, um, both of which are, you know, considered almost, you know, pre-white man kind of, um, mythology because Native Americans have legends about them. Um, and I find interesting about the Lake Champlain is it's kind of set up with like the Loch Ness um, because it's a very deep kind of um, unexplored area. Um, recently they discovered the only known version of freshwater urchin they they theorized that sea urgents had gotten trapped there um after the um the whole ice age and adapted to the fresh water um so there is even this kind of vague um science background of yeah maybe you know something could have weird happened there um so i decided that i wanted to do um upstate new york instead of Chesapeake Bay, and that's how I ended up with that monster. Um, and then I started doing the research, and I came across this whole hoax of the Lake George monster. I'm like, oh, no, no, that's too good to pass up. <laughs> Everything in my book, in my story, um, is actually there. There is actually a tiki hotel. There's actually a wax museum. It was just, this is all just too re- too good to pass up. It has to be this. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny, actually, when I was reading it, it almost felt a little too on the nose. I was like, okay, there wouldn't be a Max Museum in a Tiki Hotel. That's a little, almost too cutesy. But then it's true. Yeah, so it's sort of, uh, truth is stranger than fiction, I guess. Truth is kitschier than fiction. (laughs) 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 Uh, One thing I also really liked about it is the protagonist, Tuck. He's this insurance investigator or adjuster who gets called out because... There's been there are some strange happenings at this in this town. There's some strange destruction, and um, he's sort of this textbook example of this reluctant hero. He does not want to get pulled into this. Um, these two federal agents show up and kind of draft him into helping out, and it just it makes for some hilarious and fun moments. And the thing I liked about it is he felt like what I would be like in this. this you know, like I'm not going to be the guy. You know, heroically running into danger. I'm the one that's going to want out of it. You know, I'll just I'll fess up to that. Um, in this, if there's a big monster out, I don't want to be near it. So I just thought he was a great character, and I was wondering, it seemed like he would be fun to write, and how you came up with him, if you enjoyed, you know, taking on that little bit different take from the the uh, brawny guy who goes in there and gets it done. That's a funny 
weird thing where Esther had actually, Esther Friesner had asked me for a story, and I came up with the character. His unknown special ability to him is that um, he detects abnormalities, oh, supernatural events. He's not aware he has the power. Um, and I accidentally fell down and hurt myself and could not finish the story. Um, so I had to pull out, and I had these characters floating around. But what, when you said giant monster, I started, of course, flashing to the movies of um, I'd grown up with. And the characters are always, the human characters are always just very normal people. Um, that, you know, they're just going along with their life, and then suddenly there's a giant monster in with it. One of my favorites as a kid was the one with the baby Godzilla, where the baby Godzilla is not much bigger than the little kids that he's running around with. So um, I wanted somebody very normal to be in the situation. I was like, oh, I can have it to be this character. All right, and actually just joining us is Sarah Hoyt. She had some equipment problems, but she is here with us now. She is the author of dozens of short stories and almost as many novels, including the Prometheus Award-winning Dark Ship Thieves and its sequel, Dark Ship Renegades, as well as the books in the Shifter series, the latest of which, Noah's Boy, came out last year from Bain. Sarah, I'm glad you could make it. Thank you. Uh, Sarah, well, we've, just, we've just been talking about big monsters and uh, some of the old Toho Godzilla stuff and King Kong and all that kind of thing. Um, and I want, but I wanted to talk about your story. It, you've got an interesting monster in your story, and it's something I don't think we've seen in a horror setting, specifically snails. And I can think of some big snails in fiction. There's like that, there's that racing snail, a never-ending story, and there's that big snail at the end of Doctor Doolittle. Um, but those snails are are the benevolent. But these fire snails, as they're called in your story, they they're not so benevolent. So I just got to ask, why snails? Where did that come from? Um. I've always been terrified of snails, which is rather a stupid thing to be terrified of. It's not so much terrified as repulsed. When I was a kid, my grandmother had this backyard farm, and she'd go and pick off the snails off the vegetables and crush them. And just looking at them crush, they had this, ooh. And yeah. my brother, I, I, I'm very lucky. I have a 10-year-old brother who, of course, once figuring out I didn't like snails, put them in all sorts of interesting places, like my shoes. So, you know, after a while it became a fear because the snails would appear in weird places, like the bed. You know, I had checked the bed for snails. So so when when he asked me if I had a big monster, I thought, giant snails. And, of course, he immediately sent me an email back saying, Saunter, Saunter, for your lives, the snails are coming, or something like that. And, um, Walk slowly. Yes, <laughs> crawl, crawl away slowly, the snails are coming. I was talking to my son about it and saying, how do I make them supernatural? My son has a degree in biochem, and he said, you know, we have land snails. And we have we have aquatic snails. You know what would be really scary? Fire snails. And because I had been reading about volcanoes and 
So we ended up with fire snails that cause volcanoes. Yeah, you know, it was funny when, like you, you think it's kind of goofy to be, you know, scared or gross. But then when I got to thinking about them, they're kind of, they are kind of creepy looking. They're very alien. They've got these tentacle, uh, you know, not tentacles, but... uh. And they move on a cushion of slime. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, they leave that yeah, they, they leave that rainbow of slime as they move along. Um, it recalls two movies that uh, there were snail-like creatures in them too. That one was called the Monster that Challenged the World, and it was these giant snails from the Salton Sea. And then there was another one called Island of Terror, and it was a British movie about these strange um, things that had long necks and they'd suck your bone marrow out. <laughs> yeah. I had for about two years the idea of writing something about the magical lesion. Well, longer than that, because I wrote some stories with them. So it sort of works. Yeah, and um, I like that too. I know you just said I'm drawing a blank, but the, the team of special ops team that takes care of this. And um, they're kind of, they're supernatural as well. And you, you've used them before, is that right? Or this is not their first appearance? I used them in uh, Where Horse and Rider Fell, which is a, uh, it's a, it's, it was the secret history or the, one of the secret history's chronicles or something like that. And I used the same chord. Um, I spent a portion of, of my wasted youth reading about the foreign legion. That's part of what they are. They're a foreign magic lesion. Yeah, yeah, it works. Hank, I, before we uh, go here, um, I wanted to talk about your story briefly, which is called The Giant Cat of Sumatra. And I, I was reading it and I was like, that sounds so familiar. Why do I know that? And then, of course, it hit me. And for those people who are thinking the same thing I was, it's a reference to The Giant Rat of Sumatra, which is a Sherlock Holmes case that he mentions in The Adventure of the Sussex Vampire. And uh, since then, various writers have taken on their spin on the tale, and, and Hank, now you continue the tradition. But you not only weave in the Sherlock Holmes mythos, but the mythos of another writer or two. So maybe just tell us about the story. You said it kind of had a in an email when we were talking about this a funny genesis with a with an internet cat picture, actually. Yeah, when I was beginning to put together the anthology, uh, uh, I don't remember how it how I came to run across it online, but I ran across this uh, picture of a gigantic Godzilla-sized cat that was standing out in the water. I don't think a cat would want to do that, even a very big one. And it looks like it was dismantling the Golden Gate Bridge. So I, I realized that point. Really ought to have a giant cat at this story. And so I ended up writing one myself. Although the cat in the story is not quite that big. And also the cat is uh, not just a cat. It's a goddess who's, tra Egyptian goddess who's transfer transformed her form into that of a giant cat. And I thought, this is not going to be a serious story, so I might as well throw in anything I think of. And, and I also thought, this may be the only chance I ever have to do a Sherlock Holmes pastiche, which uh, I wouldn't dare do under normal circumstances, because I don't know enough about the period and all the bits and details of uh, England at that time. And I'm no good at coming up with brilliant deductions 
but I could have him in briefly as a uh, consulting uh, expert. Uh, there are all sorts of little things in there. There are uh, joke in jokes that a lot of people won't get. Um, and uh, for for example, there was uh, there there are two cops that busted the door. Two men come through the door with a gun. And Raymond Chandler is noted for having uh, complained about pulp stories, detective pulp stories, is whatever the story slowed down, uh, the writer would have a van come through the door with a gun. So I have two cops come through the door with a gun, and one of them is named Chandler. So that's an in-joke. The the other cop is, is addressed at one point as Ray. So anyway, I set out to write an unserious yeah. story. The biggest problem was I wanted a rat gun. There doesn't seem to be one. So I threw in a rat demon that has uh, delusions of Godhood. And his name... His name is from the Egyptian word I found online, so it's not reliable for for rat. Except I had to insert a couple of uh, vowels because the Egyptian names, oddly enough, don't uh, just have consonants and vowels are inserted by the person saying them. Seems like an odd way of doing things, but then uh, then that was another country in another era. Well, anyway, it's a very unserious story, and I put in a lot of what amounts to sibling rivalry. As one of the characters doesn't see movies, uh, claiming she'd rather read a book, but uh, she's Bass, the cat goddess of Egypt, claiming she does, would rather read a book. Uh, but the real reason is uh, the uh, the other cat goddess is a big movie and TV fan, uh, and she doesn't want to be doing the same thing that one's doing. That's something I remember. Remember from my youth, for instance, my brother was big on cheeseburgers, so I always ordered a plain hamburger. Because I didn't want to be ordering the same stuff my brother was ordering. Kids are really sick, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it was a typical I'm sorry? The theme of this anthology is it's all the brothers' fault? Uh, well, this it's one all the, is actually all... the fault all... of the brothers of the writers. <laughs> Yeah, well, the story is partly my brother's fault, but the uh, the the anthology is actually Bob Eggleton's fault. Yeah. He he suggested the whole thing to Tony without realizing he was suggesting it. And Tony Tony then came to me and said, "Are there enough giant monster stories to make an anthology?" And I said, "Sure." In fact, there were several I couldn't get, so there are actually more than enough to make an anthology. And this this is fairly fat. There's almost 500 pages. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's the big book. It should be the it's the main big book of monsters, but it should be the main big book of big monsters, I guess. But I guess that wouldn't that doesn't fit too well on a spine. So I guess just in closing, we've we've touched on a lot of them: um, Godzilla and King Kong, like, and some of the others, the Lovecraftian monsters. But I just kind of wanted to go around the circle metaphorically um, and have everyone just maybe briefly talk about their. Favorite big monster, either books, movies, or television um, that made an impression on you. And Sarah, since you, you know, joined us late, we haven't got a chance to talk much. If you, why don't you start us off? What was what was a big monster that really made an impression on you? Um, honestly, I like dinosaurs. I didn't watch scary movies as a kid, so the scariest thing I watched was as an adult, Jurassic Park. And I always like dinosaurs anyway, so yes, I'm going to go T-Rex. Yeah, and you're a, you're a Bradbury fan, if I remember right. 
Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so he's he's got some good dinosaur stories. Yeah. Yes, including the kid who t- gradually turns into a dinosaur. So yes, I I I'm going to a T Rex, and you know I can go to the Natural History Museum. And right at the entrance in Denver, they have, well, they call it the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And right at the entrance, they have the skeleton of a T-Rex with its foot upraised. And it sort of puts it in perspective, you know. You look at this and go, oh, (laughs) I would be so completely lost. Of course, my younger kid, when he was much younger, liked to stand under the foot and say, save me, save me. Remove him from there three times per visit. Yeah, and the T-Rex has a benefit of, you know, it was real as opposed to a guy in a rubber suit. So I guess he got he does have an edge in that in that way. Bob, what about you? You've mentioned uh, Godzilla a few times, but it, would that be your all-time? My favorite move, my favorite giant monster, yes. And from literature, it would be probably Cthulhu from H.P. Lovecraft cuz uh, he wrote the creature as this like this mountain it, it was a mountain walk, I mean, this sort of thing. And then when, like, and it was, a, uh, you know, there's been very different interpretations of the creature, but he's, I mean, he's just this shapeless mass, essentially, is what it is. And, and, and uh, you know, and, and so Cthulhu is probably my favorite literary giant monster in that regard, um, uh, you know, uh, because it's, it's so, it's so he, he, he describes it, but yet does not describe it, which makes it even more enigmatic. You know, yeah, Lovecraft was great at giving you just enough for your imagination to paint the rest in the most horrific way possible. I think he really excelled at that. Yeah, I saw them yeah, using yeah. the call of Cthulhu in the book, but I finally decided that the invisibility touch was a nice extra in the Dunwich Horror. It's not as if uh, either story is obscure, of course. Well, but you know. Not obscure for a reason. They're classics. Um, Wayne, how about you? What's your favorite, all-time favorite big monster? Oh, wow. That, it's really hard for me to say. But I think I'll throw out uh, an odd one that probably hasn't been heard of before. Um, there was an anime series called Neoronga. And um, it was really cool in that the story was these three girls are called to this tropical island to telling them that they have an inheritance that they have to come pick up and when they get there it turns out they're the they're the priestess of the island god and um the villagers give them the god and they don't realize it that the god's actually this huge huge you know godzilla size kind of crab thing and they're go through the whole ritual which bonds them to the god and then they go back to Tokyo and the monster shows up and moves in with them but it's this giant thing and it it destroys the sidewalks while when it walks and everything and the three sisters all have a different reaction to it one is oh my god we have to take it back and the other one is just I'm going to ignore what's going on and pretend it doesn't exist. And the youngest is one is like, cool, I'm going to go stomp on people. <laughs> you knew one of them would be. <laughs> yeah. amazingly, enough, amazingly enough, I've seen that one. Uh, and it is a lot of fun. 
the 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 god is probably violating all the zoning laws of of Tokyo or wherever he was. Yeah. Well, Hank, what about you? What's your favorite big monster? You you've got you know you know a lot of them. You filled a whole book with them, so uh, you've got a lot to choose from. What do you think? Yeah. Well. Uh, dinosaurs are a big part. I remember my parents had a book about dinosaurs with pictures, uh, which I thumbed through before I could read, so I had no idea what it was about. Uh, and many of them had a band next to the dinosaur for scale. I didn't realize that was just for scale. I thought, uh, that guy is, is, is a goner. That's my first encounter with dinosaurs. And, uh, and then I saw King Kong, I think it was in the, Third grade when it was re-re-released, that was impressive. And of course, there was a dinosaur, which is uh, I think if I think if Kong is fifty feet tall, the Tyrannosaurus he fights is probably too big. But who cares? Not to mention all the vegetarian dinosaurs that keep attacking the party. They're angry vegetarians, though. Yeah, <laughs> maybe the one that keeps the neighborhood from going downhill. Probably the second monster movie I ever saw was The Beast with 20,000 Phantoms, which I think I was in the fourth grade by then, when it came around for the first time. But probably probably if uh, I would join Bob in picking uh, Cthulhu as the my favorite giant monster, since he's so much uh, more evil, if evil has any reference to uh, him in human terms. Than, uh, than King Kong or the Beast with 20,000 Phantoms or any other giant monsters who cover out the pack set. I'd also put in a nod for a pretty good story that's really almost a remake, a movie, rather. It's almost really a be- remake of the Beast with 20,000 Phantoms called The Giant Behemoth, which was made by the Brits, so it's a bit better than... Some of the special effects are a little crappy. Well, also Brian, Brian, Brian the last, the yeah. Dinosaur. Him but and another guy places, did the dinosaur effects, yeah. Yeah, but there's there's some place they screwed up. Like uh, it, there's one place where the uh, uh, I think it's been decades since I saw it, but I think it's the father of the of the girl, yeah, the guy. They find the old man who's who uh, is dying from uh, from uh, wounds sustained, and you can see a camera, uh, rather a microphone shadow. Uh, on, on the landscape. Then there's several yeah. places where the destruction is obviously a painting. That they close in on to give oh, yeah. the illusion of movement, uh, even though it's not moving. The one thing, so, about, uh, one little anecdote about those films, The Beast in 20,000 Fathoms, Giant Behemoth, and Gorgo were all directed by Eugene Lurie, who they, oh, the same guy did every one of them. <laughs> wow, so. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I'm, also, uh, I'm also embarrassed to say I've never managed to see Gorgo. I need to uh, check that off before, before I croak. Also, I'd, I'd put in a recommendation right. if you ever come across it for a movie called Queen Kong, which is uh, a musical, by the way. I've got it. <laughs> it <laughs> I, I don't recommend it because it's good. It's, if you like bad movies, this, this one will warm the cockles of your heart. It's a bad one, yeah. All right. Well, I'll I'll close it out. I'll just say, you know, I I I had King Kong versus Godzilla as a kid on a VHS tape, and I enjoyed that, but I didn't really watch. I don't know why. Maybe it was just the the timing of the cycle of things coming around, but I didn't catch many of the Godzilla movies. So, um, 
you know, I've got to give it to King Kong, I think, as my all-time favorite. There's something, especially that the original, not that, I mean, the Peter Jackson remake's okay, but there's something about that original 33 King Kong that's still, it's still enchanting. It still holds up. It shouldn't. It's a special effects movie that's, what, 70 years old. Shouldn't hold up that well, but somehow it does, you know, so. We get time travel, we need to send somebody back to steal the part about him fighting the giant spider that they threw away. Yeah, this is that famous, for those people who don't know, this is a, uh, Bob and Hank, you probably know more about this than me, but there was a, there's a scene when they're on the log and he Kong shakes them off, or some of them off, and they were supposed to fall down, and well, they did, into this ravine, and there's all these giant spiders that come out. And for whatever reason, I've heard... I've heard it was something to do with sensors. I've heard that's not the case. I don't know, but they've lost it. It's lost forever, and you know, it's it's one of the the great tragedies. Everyone wants to find that missing reel of film. The story goes that Miriam C. Cooper saw it, and some people claim it doesn't even exist. But the Miriam C. Cooper claim had seen it. This is the story Ray Bradbury had said, and that he did not like the way that it it just stopped the movie. I mean, they were running across this log, this great action thing, and they're running after Anne. They're trying to get Anne. So they run across the log. Kong comes back, shakes them all off the log in this really epic action scene. And then, oh boy, we're stuck at the bottom of the pit while these guys get devoured by these spider things. And, well, what happened to Anne? You know, I mean, it just stops the movie and goes another direction. And Peter Jackson, of course, added that scene back in to his movie, and that's exactly what happens. The movie just stops there. You know, I mean, it just, it just, it's a, it's visually beautiful, but it just stops. And we forget, oh, what, there's a giant ape somewhere, isn't there? You know, um, and Jackson... Jackson, what he did do was he did successfully remake the 33 version in his own way with some real kind of some really 1930s style stop motion animation. It's an extra on the King Kong, the 33 King Kong DVD. You know that's what it would lo- that's what it would have looked like, um, even though it it was uh, uh, it was a vague construction based on some storyboards that he'd acquired of what the scene looked like. So it it. If you want to see kind of what it looks like, see that thing. But you'll see why they cut it from the why it was cut because it just stops the film. It just it, the entire flow of the movie just stops. That's what that's. It was more than that than censorship or anything like that. It's odd in that way, right? Because it really probably should have been cut, and yet, man, you just won't wish it still was in there, you know, and you could still see it. Okay, well, we've been talking about big monsters in general and the Bane Big Book of Monsters in specific. It's out now just in time for Halloween. Uh, Here's a suggestion. Maybe buy a couple dozen and give them out to trick-or-treaters. It probably will guarantee your house won't get toilet paper. Uh, I want to thank everyone for being here on the podcast today. Hank, Bob, Sarah, Wynn, thanks so much. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to all you happy haunts out there listening in in podcast land. Have a happy Halloween. And now here is part 31 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup for what's coming up. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents. 
and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their power for good. Some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy. That's the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse. These are known as the Grim Noir Knights. If the Grim Noir are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak, and the apocalyptic finale for humanity may be about to begin. Here's Bronson Pinchot with part 31 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Chapter 13 I am by heritage a Jew, by citizenship a Swiss, by magical gift a cog, and by makeup a human being, and only a human being, without any special attachment to any state or national entity whatsoever. Albert Einstein, Letter to Alfred Nesser, 1919 Detroit, Michigan the United Blimp and Freight Michigan facility was the size of a small town, and it did actually have a company town in it. UBF provided housing to its workers, and despite that, communist agitators had still managed to get them to strike the previous summer. Cornelius Gould Stuyvesant could not understand the sheer ingratitude, but then again he wasn't in debt up to his eyeballs to the UBF company store. That was his workers' fault for being greedy. Debt was a tax on the stupid. His arrival had surprised the management, but they had learned over the years that he liked to drop in on his properties unannounced. He could tell from his manager's reactions that this visit was slightly off-putting. It was probably because he couldn't stop itching. Ever since the pale horse had touched him, he'd felt an unbearable creeping sensation, spending a fortune in the process. He'd exhausted five healers, and still he was certain that he was ill. He'd banished his mistresses, afraid that he might catch something terrible from them, since his immune system was in such a weakened state. He had taken to wearing an antiseptic scarf, and had made all twelve of his new security men do the same. The only reason he'd ventured out from the safety of his private floors atop the Chrysler building was to fulfill the damnable Pale Horse's mission— the cog engineer in charge of this project was the only other person in the drafting room when Cornelius unfolded the new blueprints. He'd made the cog wear a face mask as well. You can see the necessary changes here, he said, stabbing his fat finger into the diagram. This is your number one priority. You will do this with the fewest possible employees in the utmost secrecy. Make sure they are hand-picked men, hand-picked. It took him a minute to decipher the complicated design. Uh, sir, I'm afraid that I don't understand. This change serves no mechanical purpose. It's merely some geometric design stuck together. It does not even have an artistic purpose, since that's an interior wall in the bowels of the ship, behind a hydrogen piping system, in fact. No one will ever see it. You have... He pulled out his pocket watch. Twenty-four hours. Then we will be shipping the Imperium their new diplomatic flagship. The cog's eyeballs bulged over his mask. That's impossible. 
She's out on trial right now. There's no way we'll get the piping system moved in time and still get everything. There was no time for this. He could feel the bugs crawling under his skin. Cornelius grabbed him by the protruding Adam's apple and squeezed. The cog choked. Listen here, boyo, you will get this done, in secret, right now, by God, or I'll have you fired. No, wait, I'll have you tossed out of one of your own dirigibles from five thousand feet. Can your fancy magic brain handle that? The cog stumbled away, coughing and red. After he composed himself, he replied, I'll get right on it. Damn right you will, Cornelius sputtered, indignant, and then he fled to wash his hands. Mar Pacifica, California John Moses Browning knocked politely before entering Black Jack Pershing's room. He wasted no time and did not bother to sit. The general already knew why he was there. How long have you known that the heavy was an iron god's brother? Pershing coughed, but managed to contain it before it turned into a fit. Soon after, he single-handedly tore through half of our operatives. I requested his records. Roosevelt had three Sullivans under his command. One died, one lost half his face and the last became a legend. The oldest one stayed in the service, but went AWOL from the expeditionary unit sent to support the Tsar during the revolution. Intelligence from the international leadership suggested that the missing Sullivan had been recruited by the Imperium, and the descriptions matched. I knew it was a possibility. It would have been nice of you to say something sooner. Then perhaps our house guests wouldn't start shooting each other. Have you gone daft? Didn't see that coming, Pershing answered. See, I told you the little girl would make a fine assassin. She stabbed or shot half the estate by now. How is she? tied up in the basement until we decide how to proceed. Daniel and Heinrich are convinced she's a Shadow Guard infiltrator. Francis and Lance were ready to fight them over that conclusion. And you? Oh, I do believe she's innocent. She's the only one of us who's actually seen Maddie in the flesh. If I had been in her shoes, I probably would have done the same thing. Only I would have used a weapon chambered in a proper caliber, and he'd be dead. And his miraculous recovery. As soon as Jane had regained enough power, she gave him a proper healing. However, he should never have been around long enough for that to have happened. So he came back from the dead and completed the most complicated of physical spells on himself. Browning shrugged. I'm certainly not that good of a wizard. Pershing had known that this one was special. Send him in. Sullivan paced back and forth in the guest bedroom, staring at the white wall. Occasionally he would pause, think about something then make another mark with one of the charcoal pencils he'd found. 
he was interrupted by a knock on the door. Come in. Browning entered. Mr. Sullivan, the general would like to... Oh, my. The furniture had been cleared from one side of the room. The white paint had been covered in marks, notations, and designs from floor to ceiling. Complex geometric shapes were interlocked, and lines led from the shapes to words. Density light. Fade. Density thick. Rakusaburo. All related to gravitation. Heavy. Electromagnetism. Crackler. Icebox. Torch. Biological positive. Healer. Biological negative. Pale horse. The brute seems to be a combination of biological and perhaps a midpoint of the density side. Intersection of the hexagram? Mental. Didn't get good look, but was it a dodecahedron? Mouth, listener, beastie? Where do cogs fit in? Traveler. Third corner of the heavy triangle, unknown, folding space somehow. Is that related to finders and summoners? Do the summoned come from the old world the power left behind? It went on like that for several feet, packed into tight block paragraphs. Sullivan stepped back from his work and took it all in. Browning saw that the bullet holes from the day before were now just a series of white blemishes on his back. Jane had done her work well, but she had confirmed that the wounds had stabilized by themselves. Yeah, sorry about the mess. I needed something big. I've got to get this down while I remember it. I have a chalkboard downstairs, Browning suggested. I take it you did not sleep much? Sullivan turned to face him. He was shirtless, corded with muscle, and the bandages had been ripped off and tossed aside. The terrible lacerations and chemical burns from the day before were now a complicated circle of raised, white scar tissue, he covered it with one hand. You did good work. Then he pointed at another spot on the wall. This is what it should have looked like. Many of the designs were similar to the designs that the Grimoire had collected through decades of experimentation into the Rune Arcanium. Browning had always excelled at the study of those because he instinctively had an understanding of how things fit together, whether made of metal or magic. These designs were beyond even him. How do you know all this? Long story. I suppose I only want to explain it once. Any chance there's a shirt around here I can borrow? I've been running through those things like there ain't no tomorrow. Sullivan thought about the mark on his chest while he waited for the skeletal man in the bed to address him. The other spots on his body that the healer had sealed up still ached, but the geometric design over his heart just felt different. He could feel his own power beneath it, where it had always lived since he was old enough to remember, but this was strange, like a warm weight had been sewn into his skin. Physically, it didn't hurt at all. It actually felt good. The power inherent in the design was nothing compared to what he'd developed over the years, and somehow he knew that this bit could never grow beyond what it was now. Yet he felt stronger, healthier, more alive than he ever had before. His own constitution had been augmented into something more. He could better understand why the chairman's men would seek these things out, but at the same time, 
he now understood that the power was using him as much as he was using it, and the idea of cutting more spells onto his body left him uncomfortable. Either way, thinking about the mysteries of the power kept his mind off of what had happened to his brother. The old man had been propped up with pillows. The general spoke. Give us a moment, John. He waited for Browning to leave, studying Sullivan with cataract-filled eyes. Once the door closed, he spoke. At ease, Sergeant. Sullivan realized that he'd been standing perfectly straight. Old habits die hard. In fact, sit, staring all the way up there is wearing me out. Yes, sir. Sullivan pulled up a chair next to the bed. Can I? There's nothing you can do for me now unless you happen to come across the bastard that cursed me. And if you do, rip his heart out. Other than that, just listen. The general's voice was a whisper. Solomon had to lean in close to hear. There aren't many of us left. We've always worked in small units, in secret. But we've been hunted down like dogs. We're stuck in the middle of a war. One side's pure evil. The other side's too obstinate to realize it's even in a fight and is more scared of its own best weapons than the enemy. Do you know who we are? You're a bunch of mystics who fight evil. Mystic Sullivan. I'm an Episcopalian. I only know what Dan Garrett told me, and he kept it close to the vest. But you came anyway. Sullivan shrugged, once again getting involved in somebody else's fight. Yeah, I guess I did. That's because you're a man with a sense of duty. You do what you think you have to know. <gasps> Matter what, I can tell that about you, the general said. Don't ask how I know. I just know the measure of a man, and I can see that duty in you. It's like a fire in your belly. It was possible the old man's curse was affecting his mind. Solomon didn't think he was anything special, just another guy trying to get by. A curious one, though. Why am I here, sir? Jane would be quite cross if she knew I was about to do this. But we're approaching a time of reckoning. Let me show you my power. One palsied hand drifted over and rested on Sullivan's own, and then he saw... Makajambo, Philippines, 1903. You are the one they call Nigger Jack? The weathered old Filipino asked in surprisingly perfect English. He'd been given that nickname after commanding the 10th Cavalry made up of buffalo soldiers. He held open the flap to his tent. I am Captain Pershing. He glanced about the darkened camp and saw that the guards were still at their stations. How had this man come this far into the camp? He placed one hand on his flap holster. 
Who are you? The old Filipina was dressed rather nicely with a red silk vest, probably one of the local leadership they'd been protecting from the Moros. I am the one who has come to teach you about magic. I do not know what you are talking about, Pershing said firmly. He looked around. No one was close enough to overhear them. Even rumors of being actively magical could ruin his career. The visitor raised his hand. A gold and black ring glimmered in the torchlight. You have seen this before, yes? He had several times, in fact. As a boy, that ring had been on the hand of the man who had stopped a Missouri mob from lynching a child who could make fire with his thoughts. That ring had been on the finger of the man who'd thwarted his assignment to capture a magical Lakota girl. Then in Montana, a Cree medicine man had brought down real medicine and caused a plague to erupt, but they'd been cured by a woman wearing that same ring. In Cuba, a Spaniard who'd frozen them with his breath and shot ice crystals from his hands had been killed by an unknown soldier with a gold and black ring. All of them had come, whether as enemy or ally, done something to protect a magical, and then disappeared as mysteriously as they had come. We defend those who would be ruined because of their birthright, but we police our own and will not allow magic to be used for ill. We keep the balance. Pershing only had to think about it for a moment. He held the flap open wider. Come inside. That was part 31 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, as read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. And thanks to interview host extraordinaire David F. Shararad. And thanks to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a Cthulhu-esque multi-tendril salute. And the revelation of the secret origin of galactic dark matter, its old god Ickard, duh. To Wynn Spencer, Sarah A. Hoyt, Bob Eggleton, and Hank Davis, the story authors, the cover artist, and the editor of the Bane Big Book of Monsters. And remember, Island's audio drama is now for sale at BaneEbooks.com. Please get one for yourself, your loved ones, your friends, and your favorite pet who is maybe smarter than people imagine. Happy Halloween, and please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Stars.